Good morning. The title of today's message, uh, continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 4, our title is Gifted by Grace. And the key word, for those that would like to make tally marks and keep track, is the word gift. And so let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the riches of your mercy and grace. We thank you for what you accomplished for us when you died on the cross. And Lord, we also thank you for what you accomplished in us when we believed the gospel. And the truth of that gospel was confirmed in us at the moment of our new birth. We give you all praise and all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Paul begins here by saying, The grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. In this passage, we see a, a continuum from the past into the present and on into the future. I'd like to point that out to you as a way of introducing this passage. First of all, in the past, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Notice that is all in the past tense. In the present, so that you come short in no gift. That is in the present tense, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then for the future, in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see in this that there is a grace that God has provided And all that we need to be rescued from our sinful past, to be equipped for ministry in the present, and to be secure in our salvation for all eternity in the future is provided in this this grace. Past, present, and future are addressed in this short passage as Paul begins his letter to the church in Corinth. Now, we sing amazing grace, and God's grace truly is amazing. And as we see in chapter 1 and verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you 
for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. Now we know the basic definition of grace. We emphasize this constantly here at Gracious Cross. Grace is the unmerited favor of God towards sinners. Now remember, this is not God's unmerited favor toward righteous people. That wouldn't be necessary. This is the unmerited favor of God towards sinners that shows mercy to us by enabling us to repent of our sin. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And then to go on to be and to will to do what is pleasing to God. All of that is by God's grace. I think a beautiful picture of the salvation that we experience is the resurrection of Lazarus. Imagine for a moment, Lazarus, you know, he's been dead for three days. He's in the tomb. Jesus has the young men roll the stone out of the way, take the stone out of the way, and he shouts into this tomb, this dark tomb, Lazarus, come forth. Now, Lazarus was not in there thinking about it. Okay. <laughs> he, was not, he was not making a decision to follow Christ. He was dead. And as soon as he was alive, as soon as his eyes were open, he's looking for the door and he wants to get out of there, right? So our salvation is like that. We're dead in trespasses and sins and God issues that, that uh, powerful call. The same, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, as we saw this morning, raises us from the dead. And the only thing that we bring to this process is the sin that needs to be forgiven. And so this is, this is what happens with the grace of God. And not only are we awakened and brought to life by Christ, but we are also then equipped and given opportunity to live for Christ. Now, I always like to point out that as Lazarus came out of the grave, Jesus turned to those who were standing by and said, loose him, you know, Help him off with these grave clothes. We don't know if he was hopping. We don't know if he was walking, you know, baby steps. But he was all wrapped up in grave clothes. And he needed the fellowship of other believers to help him get his grave clothes off. And I think that's a picture of what happens to us as well. We come to Christ. We come fully saved. And yet we are still you know, it's like the toilet paper on the heel kind of a thing. You don't notice it, but you're walking around and, and people are noticing. <laughs> Somebody who loves you comes over and says, um, <clears throat> you've, you've got some toilet paper stuck to the bottom of your foot there. You might want to take care of that. Well, in a similar way, we, we notice people still are carrying around attitudes that are not... Uh, suitable for a believer in Christ, perhaps habits that have not really been thought about. I'm always uh, amazed that when I hear about a, a brother I highly re respected, he, he's gone to be with the Lord, Keith Green. Keith Green was a, just a wonderful, eager, dynamic, gifted brother in Christ. But he was still smoking marijuana for about a year after he got saved. He didn't realize there was anything wrong with that. He hadn't thought about it. Some brothers talked to him about that. 
And he prayed and, and the Lord showed him, you know, this is not appropriate for somebody who follows me. You don't need that. And it's a, it's a bad witness to others. And so, you know, and so he stopped. He stopped. But it, it takes a while sometimes to get the grave clothes off. Maybe the rest of our lives. <laughs> okay? And so God is taking care of us. Now, in John chapter 1 and verse 17, we read, For the law was given through Moses, and the law was harsh. People uh, routinely were punished and, and, and many even executed for the violation of the, of the law of Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The unmerited favor of God comes through Jesus Christ. And the truth of what is going on in this world and, and why we are here is all come to us and been revealed through Jesus Christ. But God has shown his unmerited favor to sinners from the very beginning. Even though that grace comes through Jesus Christ, it came at the very beginning, even in the Garden of Eden, based upon what Jesus Christ would do on the cross. That grace has always been granted on the basis of what Christ was going to accomplish for us by dying on the cross. And now, after he has died on the cross and risen from the dead, all of the grace that we enjoy is due to the fact that he died in the past for us. So those looking forward to Christ's coming and now we looking back to his having come, it's always what he accomplished for us on the cross that purchased for us the unmerited favor of God, allowing God to be kind to sinners. Jesus paid for that. He bought that for us on the cross. God's forbearance of sins in the past was purchased by Christ's blood. We see that very clearly in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 through 26. Now this is a passage that is just chock full of doctrine, deep, very meaty doctrine. But I want to point out a few particular phrases. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Before this Righteousness was entirely a matter of following the law. But now a righteousness of God apart from the law is, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the law and the prophets foretold that this was coming. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. So this is a righteousness that comes by faith rather than by obedience to the law. For there is no difference, Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There we see this redemption was purchased by Christ and it is a righteousness that is apart from the law whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Now that's a big word, propitiation. We, we hear that word many times, we don't understand what it means. I think probably the best explanation of propitiation would be like, you know, if there's this, the wrath of God is being poured out and the blood of Christ is like 
you're, you're under a, a big force field, a big shield, and the, and the wrath is hitting the shield and passing you by. Christ's blood is the propitiation for our sin. If it weren't for his blood, his sacrifice, that wrath would hit us full on. But instead it's deflected. It, it, it bounces away and we're left alive. Not only alive, but reconciled to God. Through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Now notice this next phrase, I put it in bold here. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. How could God deal so mercifully with David after he committed adultery and murder? It's because of the death of Christ upon the cross that allowed God to have forbearance and to pass over that sin that was previously committed. All the saints of the Old Testament enjoyed the mercy and the grace of God because of what Christ would do when he came. He is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one that bore our sins. He's the one that has deflected the wrath of God away from us because he took it upon himself. Now, and if we're told in verse 26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. This is what Christ has accomplished in the past. And Paul's writing this after Christ has died and risen from the dead. He demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If it weren't for what Christ did on the cross, the Father could not show this mercy without being unrighteous. He would be an unrighteous judge if he were to pass over our sins and not give us the punishment that was due. And it's only because of the blood of Jesus Christ that God could be both just and the justifier of those who have their faith in Jesus. The Old Testament saints had their faith in the promises of a coming Messiah. They did not know his name. They didn't know the story. They didn't know anything about a Roman cross. But their confidence was that God's promises were true and would ultimately be fulfilled and that all the sacrifices at the temple were all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And so that's what we're dealing with. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about something that was purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, the unmerited favor of God. And every gift of that unmerited favor has been paid for by Jesus. And that's why we sing, what a Savior. What a Savior we have. Now, I want to get into a little Greek grammar here. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I have enough uh, familiarity with the Greek tools available to us today to be able to make some sense of this. And I often turn to others who are much more competent in this area than myself. But we're dealing with a, a, a principle in Greek called the aorist 
uh, tense. That means the word is affected by its timing. And in the aorist tense, this is something that happens in the past at a particular point in time. It's not something that happened and continues to happen. It's something that happened once and for all in the past, and it's now it's done. Now, let's take a look at how this works. In 1 Corinthians 1, 5 and 6, you were enriched in everything by all in utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Notice, you were enriched, past tense. The testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. That's errorist in the Greek tense. Now these errorist verbs mean that the enriching and the confirming were given at some specific time in the past, some particular point in time in the past. And when it was done, it was done. It's not a continuing thing, it's a completed thing. Now, when did that happen? Well, we're told in verse 6, when the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So he's speaking to these Corinthian believers, and he's telling them that something happened in the past that has now established something that is, you're experiencing it in the present on the basis of what was completely accomplished in the past. So, the testimony of Christ we see throughout the New Testament is the preaching of the gospel. Confirmed, which is, again is an aorist tense verb, refers to something that happened at one particular point in time in the past, and that thing was believing the gospel. So we have the testimony of Christ, which, which preached, and now that testimony of Christ has been confirmed when you believed it, when you believed in the past. Now the importance of this is that this Greek word for confirmed means it's settled, it's made steadfast, it's made solid. Believing the gospel settles it and establishes it. And that's why Jesus could say on the cross, it is finished. Not, I'm just getting started, but it's finished. That, by the way, is why the Roman Catholic Church is wrong to celebrate the Mass as a continual re-sacrificing of Christ. Jesus did not die over and over and over again. He died once and for all. And that one single sacrifice in this aorist tense in the past is a settled, completed sacrifice. And it's over. It's done. We now live on the benefit of that sacrifice. But the sacrifice itself is not ongoing. It's, it's accomplished. He's now seated with God in heaven at the right hand of God. So uh, let's get in specifically into what is the testimony of Christ. Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, 6, we read that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. What does that mean? The word testimony in the Greek means maturion. It's the word maturion, and from which we get the word martyr, or as it's translated in uh, various places, 
a witness. A, a witness is somebody who's likely to get killed. That's what's saying, being said here. And so when we see, for instance, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, where Jesus says, you will be witnesses unto me. Let's go ahead and read it. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this witnesses, this word witnesses is the word metarion, which means martyr. You will be my martyrs. Wow. Where do I sign up? Okay, well, this is what it means. And throughout church history, to go into an area and be a witness to what God has accomplished through Christ places you in harm's way. And the apostles, uh, all but the apostle John, died as martyrs as they proclaimed the gospel. And John was tortured and then eventually exiled to the island because he had one more job to do. He was going to write the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see that as well. He died. You remember this, the story where Jesus is on the beach of the, the Sea of Galilee. And he's got a fire going there. And Peter's there. And John is there. And he's feeding them fish, you know. And, and uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's, someday he's going to die for his witness to Christ, that, they're, that he's going to be crucified. And, uh, and Peter says, well, what about John? Hey, you know, what, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus says, if I decide to have him live until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. And so some people got the idea that John would not die before Christ returned. And John had to refute that. He said, he didn't say that. He said, what if? Not that I was going to, but what if I did? But John did live longer than all the other apostles. And he wrote that book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we are called to be his witnesses. We're, we're called to be willing to put our lives on the line. And you know, it's so funny how you know, I have, I have been a pastor, I've been a, an evangelist, I've, I've walked with the Lord all these years, and yet there are moments, like there was a couple that came into my, my shop the, uh, just yesterday, and I felt this nudge of the Holy Spirit that I should speak to them, and they were walking out the door, and I started to say something, and then they just kind of walked out the door, and I, and I let them go. And I didn't say anything. What was I afraid of? It wasn't like they were going to turn around and hit me. You know, I might have offended them. I don't know. But the point is, even now, I've got this, this subtle kind of a hesitance to talk to people. Even when I feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit, what's, what is wrong with me? Well, that's indwelling sin. That's the fear of man. And it's sin. It's wrong. So what do I do? I ask God to forgive me. I ask him to help me to be more faithful in the future. But my relationship to Christ is not jeopardized by the fact that I messed up. Because my salvation is based upon something that happened in the past at a particular point in time. Not only did Christ die for me, 
But I believed this gospel at one particular specific point in the past. I believed and I was born again. And now I live in that reality and I will live in that reality for all of eternity. You see, my security in Christ is not based on how I'm doing, but rather on what he's done and my response to what he's done. And now I am continuing to be a testimony to a confirming of that testimony of Christ as I walk with him. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. My salvation is not based upon my performance, but rather it's based upon something that happened in the past at a particular point in time. And so when this gospel concerning Christ was confirmed in you by believing it in your own heart, that is when you were born again. And once you are born again, you are born again forever. Even though we, there was a process by which you came to faith in Christ, being born again happened at a specific point in time. This is important. We, we live in an era in which uh, people think, well, I don't remember when I came to Christ, but I know that right now I'm, I consider myself to be a believer. Well, that may be. I'm not going to say that's not possible. But it's, I'm saying that you need to be able to know at some particular point in time you came to Christ. That it wasn't something that you just kind of slipped in over a, you know, this long process of you being awakened. But rather there was a point in which you were awake. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the part I want to get to right now. There was a point at which you were awake, not that you were being awakened. Okay? Notice how it's written in, in the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton writes, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Can you remember a time in your past when you were lost? When you were blind? Because if you can't remember that a time when you were lost and when you were blind, you may still be lost and blind and just not realize it. Jesus asked the question at one point, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What does that mean? It means if you are lost and blind, but you think you are found and that you see, then that is a double blindness and a double lostness because you are so lost that you will not even seek to be found. You are so blind that you will not even attempt to see because you're convinced you already have all that there is to have. This is why it's so difficult to, to witness to someone who is trapped in some you know, extra-biblical or unbiblical cult because they think they've found it. They won't even consider the possibility that they haven't found it. And so therefore they don't want to hear anything you have to say 
Because they think this. If, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Because it's so dark, you will not even attempt to find the light. Do you see what's going on there? And so my question to you, God's question to you, is can you remember a time when you were lost? Because there's supposed to be a difference from then. Is there, can you remember a time when you were blind? Because there's supposed to be a dramatic difference between that time and now. And so, we are brought to the conclusion that we need to have a particular, an aorist tense point in time, in the past, that we can point to and say, that is when it happened. That is when I came to Christ. That is when I believed. That is when my, I confirmed the testimony of Christ in my own life. By believing, by being born again, and now I am in the family of God, and I continue to enjoy the benefits of that. Because in this new birth, you were provided with all you need. Now, Paul uses a, a, a tense in the Greek that sometimes is confusing. But your sins, past, present, and future, were all forgiven at that moment in the past when the gospel was confirmed in you. It wasn't like God said, okay, I'll forgive you for everything in the past, but don't mess up again. No, his forgiveness was, was complete forgiveness and you were then adopted into his family, and in that family, there is no rejection. There's discipline. There's God working in you to help you to grow up, but there's no rejection. There's, there's no casting you away and saying, you know, uh, I, I'm fed up with you. You became a saint in Christ at that time, and you will always be a saint in the future, for all eternity. It's not something that you are able to lose. You can't lose it. You received the Holy Spirit and with all of his gifts, and, and which he manifests in you as he wills. We're going to see that as we get into 1 Corinthians, to edify the body of Christ. You've received all the gifts that uh, you need in order to fulfill the purpose for which you've been created in the first place and now redeemed in the second place and now you go on in that reality. You received all the utterance ability that you need in order to be Christ's witness to the world around you. This word utterance shows up in many places in the New, in the New Testament. And it has to do with speaking. You know, you, you have all the speaking ability you need in order to get this job done. And so Paul says, you've received all utterance. You have received all the knowledge you need to be effective in building up your fellow believers in the faith. And so we see this uh, process by which in fellowship with one another, we encourage one another, we, we, we remind one another, we share our stories with one another of God's goodness. And the result of that speaking and knowing is that we are able to fulfill the Christian life. We have all we need. We received that at that particular point in time in the past. You were given all the assurance you will ever need to stand before God blameless in the future forever. 
It's there. It came at that point when you were born again. This was all provided to you in full at the point of your new birth. You were not born like a frog. You guys like frogs? Anybody here like frogs? You might want to turn around and look at this. Because we got frogs. Now this is on the left side. That is a tadpole. Do you know what tadpoles are? A tadpole is a, is a baby frog, right? Now what about this other one over here? The, what does he have that the tadpole doesn't have? Got what? Legs, yeah. Front legs, back legs. But look, he's still got a tail. This is called a polywog, for those of you who are not into frogs. This is a polywog. A polywog is a tadpole that has legs, but hasn't yet lost his tail. Now, eventually, he's going to lose that tail. But you are not born like a frog. You were born from the very beginning with all the parts that you will ever need in order to be a mature human being. You were born... Look, no, let's look at this baby. Does this baby have legs? Does he have arms? Okay, well, why is this baby not standing up and walking around? Hmm? It doesn't know how. But it has all the equipment to, to do it, right? Not gonna, the, you're not going to see this baby's legs pop out after it's born. No, they're already there. But the baby doesn't know how to walk yet. This is what it's like to be a Christian. We are born as believers in Christ with everything there. But it's just immature. It's an immature version of a fully developed human being. And the result of that is that we have to grow up. Maturity as a Christian is not gaining anything new. Maturity in Christ is growing into a complete version of what you already have, becoming stronger, becoming more skillful. This baby is going to learn eventually how to crawl and then how to walk and go on to be strong. Babies have the legs with which they learn to walk. Babies are completely formed at birth. And in the same way, we have all the utterance and all the knowledge we need to be effective witnesses for Christ and members of his body, participating members of his body. We just need to learn how to speak and how to walk and how to love in the ways that God intends and to do that in the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us. Eventually, we can become strong and fast. We can be very skillful. But we don't get any new legs and new arms and all of that. We had it from the beginning. It just needed to grow up and be exercised and be exerted. That's the way you should understand your Christian life. There's nothing new that needs to be added. Not even the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You were baptized in the Holy Spirit at the time of your birth in Christ. Now you can be continually being refilled with the Spirit and become more and more full of the Spirit, but it's not like you started out 
as a kind of a halfway Christian and then later you got the, got the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is a, a misreading of Scripture. It's important to know that in Christ you were complete from the beginning. It's a matter of manifesting what you are. Becoming what you already are. Becoming a stronger version of what you already are in Christ. That's what's happening in the Christian life. And so, at that point in time, in the past, we received all that we will ever need in Christ. In John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That being born again is that point in time, that moment in time, in which all that we need and all that we will ever be in Christ is birthed. And now it's just a matter of growing up. We've got it all. But we need to walk it out and live it. First, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And then continuing in verse 23, Peter tells us, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. Do you see, when we are born again, we have all that there is to be had. It's just a matter of growing up and becoming strong and walking out what God has worked in us at that time of our new birth. Once we are born again, we have all that we need to thrive, but we are not yet mature in Christ. We are babes, as Paul puts it. And maturity takes time. We don't get there overnight. Even the Apostle Paul, after he was born again, went off into the desert and spent years there with the Lord, growing, learning, studying, praying, and he comes out of the desert and joins himself to the church there in Damascus and goes on to become what we know as the Apostle Paul. It's all there from the beginning. It's a matter of growing up. First, the Corinthian church was just a bunch of babies in Christ. Have you ever heard that phrase? Oh, you're just a bunch of babies. Well, they were, they were. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. That's what they were. These, the church in Corinth were a bunch of babies. 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. You see what's going on here? We've got... Babies in Christ that need to grow up and be mature. Now, in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 13, we have a, another take on this idea. He says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use of their senses exercised 
to discern both good and evil. They have exercised uh, their ability to discern good and evil. This is all about growing up. It's not about adding something new, some new appendage. You know, some, it's a matter of growing up. Growing up into Christ is going to take both instruction and discipline. And Paul is going to offer both in his letters to the church in Corinth. So you could think of this, this letter to the Corinthian church as a letter about child training. Okay? The new birth enriched them, but it had not yet matured them. You were enriched in everything by all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you came short of in no gift. They were a very gifted church. They were enriched in all utterance and all knowledge in order to perform the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and edify the body of Christ. We're going to see this pattern here, that the gifts of the church has received are, are twofold. They face outward to proclaiming the gospel to the world, and they face inward to edifying one another in the body of Christ. And you see that as we get into the chapters about the gifts of the Spirit. There are various gifts, and some of those gifts are going to be used in reaching the world, and some are going to be used in edifying the church. And they're all gifts of God's grace. The gifts of the Holy Spirit were given in order to confirm the gospel that had been preached to them. And this is one area where the, the cessationists just go too far. There is no question that the gifts of the Spirit m were given in many contexts in order to confirm the truth of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel. People are being healed. You know, miracles are happening. And, and this in both Jesus' life and the life of the apostles is in order to confirm, you know, out of all these different sects and religions and, and cults of that day, which one is true? Well, it's the one that's raising the dead. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it's the one that's doing all these miracles. But that was for the first century in a greater way than it is today. I believe that the, the gifts still operate. And, and in mission context, they operate to confirm the truth of the gospel. But they didn't cease to operate entirely in the past because there's still a great commission to be completed. But the gifts of the Spirit as a matter of edifying one another in the body of Christ, that continues. You know, there are gifts that are not that snazzy. I mean, things like administration. I don't want that gift, okay? I don't want the gift of administration. And I'm, fortunately, I don't have it. I, my wife does. <laughs> the gift of helps. Now, that, that's one I'll take. Uh, the gift of giving. You know, that's a dangerous gift. You know, you, you are tempted when you have the gift of giving because it means that God is going to prosper you in ways that allow you to give uh, and give and give. And it's easy to begin to rationalize that, you know, this is something you can begin to spend on your own appetites and lusts. God wants you to continue to prosper so that you can continue to give. Now, I'm not saying you can't enjoy the good things in, in life, but you want to keep it within a boundary that does not start to uh, take away from the purpose for which God has prospered you. There are different gifts. We always think of the gifts in chapter 12, but there are other gifts that are mentioned in other chapters that uh, are also just as legitimately gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
But the gifts were not merit badges. This is a danger that the church in Corinth fell into this error. And we see many churches today fall into this error. The idea that, well, I have this gift because uh, God loves me. And he, he's, he's uh, I'm better than mo- most other people. I've been given special gifts because I'm special. No, God has given you these gifts because he's a loving father. He showers these gifts upon his children. And when we begin to think that the gifts are merit badges, we really go into some serious trouble. They're not merit badges. And they're not signs of your maturity. They're just gifts. Gifts that are given to God's children. Paul is rejoicing that the Corinthian church was not lacking in any gift. But it was like having a hundred babies all at the same time. It It was not easy to be the apostle to the Corinthian church. Babies eventually have to grow up. And so in 1 Corinthians 1.8, he says, eagerly waiting for the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you. <clears throat> you are confirming the testimony of Christ, and God is also going to confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So though the church at Corinth was spiritually gifted, their gifts did not mean that they were yet mature as believers. The Corinthian believers were like toddlers with power tools. Not a pretty picture, right? You can cut your arm off. And, and, and they, were, they were using their gifts in ways that were harming the body of Christ. And so Paul had to instruct them. He had to even discipline them. Do you see how this is all coming together? The church in Corinth is a beautiful picture of a young church full of baby Christians who all need to grow up. And Paul is going to help them grow up in what I believe is all three letters to the Corinthian church. And as they waited for Jesus to return, he was confirming them in their faith as their gifts operated. It must have been wonderful. I mean, the the prophecies, the words of wisdom, the words, you know, how do you know something is a gift or the word of wisdom? Because it's coming out of the mouth of somebody who's normally pretty foolish. (laughs) Right? (laughs) God says, I'm going to give this foolish person the gift of wisdom. And they're going to say something that is just so amazingly wise. And people are going, that's not you, that's God. Because that's not the kind of thing you'd come up with. What about a a word of knowledge? Who who gets the word of knowledge? The dumbest guy in the room. (laughs) God, God is going, I'm going a little too far with this, but the point is, these are baby Christians, and they're all being showered with these wonderful gifts, and they're exercising their gifts in the services, and sometimes to the point where Paul has to say, listen, people are going to walk into your service, and they're going to think you're all crazy, because just because you can speak in tongues doesn't mean you should speak in tongues especially during the church service. Because I would rather that you would all prophesy because then everybody's hearts would be convicted. People would be dropping to their knees and saying, surely God is among you because they understand what you're saying and you're revealing their hearts. And these are baby Christians, yet still immature Christians, live in Christ 
gifted. They're not coming short of any gift. But they're like toddlers with power tools. And they need to grow up. Blameless means free from all guilt and condemnation. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means no accusation can stand against you. Why? Because God has graced you. He has given you his redemption. He is your propitiation. You are not standing before God perfect, but rather standing before God blameless. And he intends for you to continue to be blameless throughout your life. You're going to sin occasionally. You're going to feel terrible when you sin. Because you're alive in Christ, the Holy Spirit will convict you. You're going to come to God in repentance for that sin. You're going to ask him to forgive you for that sin. But when you do that, you're not being resaved. You're just simply being reassured that you're in the family of God and that your Heavenly Father loves you and that he's going to continue the process of growing you up. Growing up is never easy. It requires child training. And that is what they will receive in Paul's letters. Spiritual child training. And God is going to finish what he has started. Romans chapter 1 verse 1 or chapter 8 and verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Now this is not talking about walking perfectly in the spirit. It's about having a desire to walk in the spirit, a leaning in toward walking in the spirit. And there is no condemnation it's like when a baby's learning to walk. There's no condemnation in stumbling and falling down because you're learning how to walk. And everybody's rejoicing as you get back up and continue to learn how to walk. There's no condemnation in stumbling down when you're learning how to walk. And that is what the Christian life is all about. We need to be aware that there's an accuser of the brethren out there, Satan, and he is going to condemn you when you fall, when you stumble, when you, when you sin. I'm not just talking about making a mistake or an error of judgment. I'm talking about you sinned. You did something you knew was wrong when you did it, and now Satan is beating the tar out of you and saying God has rejected you you have sinned. There is no more sacrifice for you. You've blown it. That's condemnation. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because you are learning how to walk. You are walking according to the Spirit. You're not trying to stumble. But you do stumble. You see what's going on? We're growing up. We're no longer in the courtroom. We're in the family room. And God is growing us up with instruction and discipline. So by faith in Christ as our only hope of salvation, we are forgiven of all our sins, past, present, and future. Think of that. Whatever sin you may commit in the future, it's already forgiven in Christ. Yes, you should confess it. 
Yes, you should repent of it and walk away from it. Yes, you should do all that's in within your power to not repeat it. But it's not an issue of you being rejected. It's a matter of you being corrected. Because God loves you. You're in his family. And that courtroom scene is finished. It's completed. You're not there anymore. John chapter 10, verse 28, And I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now the Arminians would pipe up at this point and say, Yeah, but you can take yourself out of his hand. Well, that is like having a paper mache link in a, in a steel chain. You know, what's the weakest link in this chain? Me! Okay? If my salvation depends upon me, then it doesn't matter how strong all the other links in the chain are. Because I'll screw up. No, I can't snatch myself out of God's hand. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Are you a created thing? Well then, we've got some security here. Or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is your security in Christ. It doesn't depend upon you. It all depends upon Christ and his sacrifice in the past at a particular point in time. And that moment in which you confirm the testimony of Christ by believing the gospel and being born again at a particular point in the past. And now you are forever, you have eternal life. And no one can take you out of Christ's hand. You have eternal life. And nothing, no created thing, shall be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is your security. Our repentance and faith as Christians does not, as I said, resave us. It simply reassures us that what has happened to us at that point of time in the past when we were born again will continue to be ours in the future and that future is forever and ever. The grace that we have received has been given to us for a purpose. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 9 chapter 1 actually in verse 9 God is faithful. In the Greek, it actually is, it, the emphasis is even stronger. Faithful is God. That's what it says. Faithful is God, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we have allowed the word fellowship to get really very churchy, right? Will you come over and have fellowship with me? Sure, I'll fellowship with you. We're not having fellowship with them. You know, I mean, we've turned it into this churchy word, right? But the word fellowship actually means partnership. You, you don't have fellowship with somebody, you know, just to sit down and, you know, 
chat. What you're doing is you're in a partnership to accomplish something together. So what is this partnership that we are in? It is the partnership of the Great Commission. And it's the partnership of the Great Commandment. It's the partnership of building one another up in our faith in Christ. It's our partnership in getting through this world without becoming casualties. It's our partnership in thriving as the community of Christ in the kingdom of God. That's our partnership. And so anytime you do anything, and you can get together and chat, but you chat about that. (laughs) You talk about the Lord. You talk about the things of God. And you pray with one another. And you ask one another, how can I help you? How can I support you? How can I encourage you? And you share with others how they can encourage you and help you and, and so on. We need one another. But there's something else we need. We need to be needed by one another. We are our best selves when we are needed. Think about it. We, you know, uh, you always see these stores, you know, they call them adult stores. And if if it's not good for children, it's not good for adults. We, we, we should live our lives with the understanding that children are better children when adults are around. But it's also true that adults are better adults when children are around. Because we need to be needed. We need to be needed to be a good example. It helps us stay on the path when we know that others are watching us and that they're learning from us and we want to be able to be a good example of following Christ. You see how that works? We, you know, there's a reason why married people live longer and are more prosperous. Because we need to be needed. We are better people when we're needed. And when we're not needed, we tend to drift off into all kinds of lifestyle choices that are unhealthy or unwise or, you know, a source of great suffering. God knows what he's doing when he gives us these relationships in which to be in fellowship, in partnership with one another, whether it's as spouse or as family or as local church or as neighborhood. We are intended to be needed by one another. God is faithful and to include those whom he has forgiven as partners in what he is doing in this world. And in the church, we are co-laborers together with him. You recall the passage where Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you'll find rest for your souls. Well, what is the yoke of Jesus? It's the yoke of seeking and saving that which is lost. It's the yoke of, of bringing healing and peace and joy into people's lives. We are partners, co-laborers with him in what he's doing in this world. And if you want to have a wonderful life as a Christian, then keep your eyes open to notice what God is doing around you and then to join in with that and be a part of whatever he's doing. And when we see life that way, then suddenly things become much more fun and interesting, much less boring. 
So Paul is going to address many issues in this letter, but all of them are intended to help the Christians in Corinth and us here in Oregon to grow up, to grow up in Christ, to become mature believers, to become skillful with all the things that we've received at birth, to learn how to walk, to learn how to run, to learn how to do hard things, to learn how to bear good fruit. We've received all utterance and all knowledge and everything else we'll ever need in order to fulfill the purpose of God. All we have to do is grow up and the rest will take care of itself. We are all going to make it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 19, which we've just gone through as our last series, we read this passage, which could just as easily have been written to the, Corinthian, to the church in Corinth. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Our God is going to complete what he started. And in 1 John 3, verse 2, we read, Beloved, now we are children of God. We are babes in Christ. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians is a letter about how to grow up 